Romans 5, verse 12, down through verse 21. Let me read our text. Therefore, just as one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one man, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it speaks to our hearts. And uh, Lord, we just want to ask and pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning exactly what it is that you desire for us to hear. And Lord, more than that, what we need to hear. Would you, Lord, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church? Lord, we ask that you would take away just those things that would impede the distractions, the things, Lord, internally and externally that would cause us to not be able to hear your still small voice in any way this morning. We ask, Lord, that you'd remove those things and that your spirit would just overrule in our hearts and lives and in our midst and that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts. Teach us, Lord, speak to us. We ask that your spirit would direct our time and bless your word as it's spoken this morning. And we ask these things, believing you want to and will, in the name of Jesus, and everyone said, amen, amen. You know, on August 6, 1945, uh, Harry Truman uh, made the decision for what we refer to as the atom bomb to be dropped on a place around Hiroshima. And if you remember the death and devastation and destruction that followed that was probably unparalleled thus far in human history. You know, the one decision, one act by one man really changed the course of geopolitical events. It altered, if you would, our world in many ways. And in essence, when you boil it down, you have one man with one act who really caused widespread destruction and altered human history. Uh, and I think that's just sort of a fitting 
illustration of the fact of what's being conveyed to us here because before that in essence and again no joke or pun intended another Adam in the Garden of Eden another Adam bomb if you would transpired in a very similar way to a much greater magnitude where the first man Adam in the Garden of Eden if you would bombed out and failed tremendously and the resulting consequences of that have altered human history to a much greater degree, it has altered human history spiritually, yet thankfully Jesus has intervened into our world since, and as a result of what Jesus has done, the one act of Jesus Christ really has provided restoration and resolved all of the problems that Adam has brought to each and every one of us. And this section really deals with that issue of Adam's failure and Jesus' restoration of what took place as the result of Adam's failure. I will be first to admit, the language in and of itself, as we read through it, if you can tell when we were reading, it's, it's somewhat difficult and technical to grasp sometime where Paul's trying to go with some of what he's saying here. But basically, it's a passage that describes Adam's failure and Jesus' restoration of what was lost in Adam's failure. Remember the background of what we're looking at this morning. Paul had just talked about in Romans 5 about God's reconciliation and how though we are enemies of God, we're estranged from God, we don't have relationship with him automatically from birth because of sin and our fallen condition, but yet God has made a way through Jesus Christ to provide reconciliation and for us to be back in relationship with him. And God is the master of reconciliation. Though we were separated from him, sin had caused a wedge between us. God's provided a way now whereby... That animosity that our sin would cause to offend God can be removed and we can be restored into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it seems with this concept of reconciliation in Paul's mind that he now goes on, I think here in the rest of the chapter, really to kind of further develop some of the realities and the glorious implications of really how great this reconciliation was, showing how though we all became universally estranged from God, through Adam, and he caused, in a sense, relationship to be lost, how Jesus has provided a perfect means to resolve that dilemma and bring us back in a much more powerful and grand way even than what Adam did. The overall point, really, of Romans 5, 12 through 21 very simply could be boiled down to this. Because of what Adam has done, all humanity has experienced the consequence of sin and death. Because of what Adam has done, all of humanity has experienced the consequence of sin and death. But because of what Jesus has now done, all of humanity can experience forgiveness and reconciliation with God and eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 12. Let's look at some of these things together. Paul begins this section by saying, Therefore, again, he had just said, that we can receive reconciliation in verse 12. And he's going to now just begin to expand upon this concept. Therefore, he says, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death has spread to all men because all sin. So here, notice in verse 12, really gives to us the answer to some very searching life questions that we have. In verse 12 alone here, you have the answer to, first of all, why all people on this planet 
are so selfish and many a times wicked and behave so wrongly. And secondly, you also have the answer to why there is in this world sickness and disease and suffering and pain and the death process. It's clearly stated here in verse 12, the reason is that sin has invaded the human race and has defiled the world and all of its inhabitants. It's what we often call the fall or the curse of sin. And it's brought destructive results. Notice it says in verse 12 with me in our text there that through one man sin has entered into the world and as well that death then came from sin. Now, if you're a note taker or you write in your Bible, there's right where you want to write in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Because basically, in a, in a statement, that's what Paul was referring to. Exactly what happened back in the Garden of Eden with the first man, Adam. It's a reference to Adam's failure re, that's recorded in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Remember, God, the Bible tells us, created man in his image and likeness. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. Adam was placed then in a perfect environment, so he couldn't argue like we try and say, well, the reason I am the way I am and the reason I made the bad choice that I did was because of my environment. I didn't have the right environment. I didn't have the best opportunity or, or upbringing. Well, how would Adam say that? Adam's parent was God. Adam's environment was perfect. The reason Adam did what he did was because he made a conscious choice to ultimately fail and to sin. So God puts him in the perfect environment. He provides for him everything he needs to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, so that which is good to eat, it's pleasing to look upon. God gives him something to do so that he can be productive and be satisfied. And then he supplies, remember, one command. One command or prohibition. He says, Adam... You may participate and partake of everything you want, but he gives him one command, one prohibition for a reason, so that he could demonstrate his love to God, because love is based on choice. Love doesn't force. Love is based upon choice. So God gave Adam an opportunity to demonstrate his love by giving him a choice, but with that command and prohibition came a warning and a consequence if it was violated. It tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. Now we know the story from Genesis 3. Adam consciously chooses to yield and it was a choice. The Bible says he wasn't deceived as Eve was. Adam wasn't deceived. Adam directly, consciously chose to disobey. Adam chose to disregard God's authority and to disobey and follow Satan's suggestion to transgress God's command. And he did it knowingly and willingly. The idea is he sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew it was wrong and he consciously chose to selfishly disobey. And it says here, as the result of Adam's decision, verse 12, that through that one man, the Bible tells us here, sin entered the world. That's probably one of the saddest statements in all the Bible. Sin entered the world. And understand, not just the first act of sin, or not just the first sin being committed, which deserves punishment, but more, this is a reference of the introduction of sin's power 
being now allowed or permitted to invade the world to rule and dominate lives. You could say, in essence, through Adam's choice, sin entered the world, or it could also be said, the doorway to the realm of sin was flung wide open. And now sin invades the world, its power, its influence begins. And notice the term repeatedly in our verses this morning isn't sins, with an S, plural, but it's the word sin, singular. And that's purposeful because it's not referring to the acts of sin that we commit, but it's referring to the power or influence of sin. It's not the fruits of sin, but it's the root of sin that's being referred to here. We might say it's referring to that factory where sin is produced from. The influence, the power of sin to then prompt people to commit acts of sin. And speaking of how humanity came under the reign of sin's power, under the reign of sin's influence in their lives, which caused them to be sinful in nature. And if that weren't enough, that sin entered the world, he goes on in verse 12 to then also tell us that just as God declared it would to Adam... It says that then death came through sin. So one of the greatest powers and effects of sin is that it destroys life. It ultimately, the Bible says, the sting of death or the sting of sin is death. It brings death. One of the greatest influences of sin is not just that it causes people to do what's wrong, but it brings the consequence of the death process. We have to remember, very important, when man was first created by God originally, you look at the story in the Garden of Eden, it was never God's intention that man die. Adam was given the capacity to live forever. He had access to the tree of life. And let me just say this as a sidelight. That is, I believe, why to this day still, when we go through the death process of a loved one, that no matter how many times you've experienced it, it never gets any easier. Because you see, when we go through certain things in this life, it's almost like we reach into our brain to try and find the file of, okay, this experience, <laughs> how do you do it? But when the death process happens, there's no file for that. Because God never intended originally that we would die. It was never God's intention. It's only because of sin and the consequence that came from it. And because of that, that is why, I can't tell you how many times I've officiated a funeral, it never gets any easier. I can't tell me how many times I've experienced the death process of someone I know or you have someone that, and every time it's complicated, it's difficult. How do I process this? How do I handle this? And there's just a confusion and a bewilderment about the whole thing. And the reason why is it was never God's plan. And that's why we struggle to cope with the whole process and to understand it. But at this moment when sin entered the world, notice we who were never intended to die now become inflicted with this dreadful consequence of the death process. Now as a result, humanity is now subject to death and experiencing death. He says in the end of verse 12 there, and thus death, notice, spread to all men because all sinned. Now here what he's saying in the second half of verse 12 is basically what we often refer to theologically as the federal headship of Adam. The federal headship of Adam. In other words, Adam being the first man represented all of humanity. He was our federal representative in the same way we elect people to represent us in government. It's the same kind of idea here. Adam represented all of humanity as a race 
and therefore his actions and the result of them have direct effect upon us. They had a direct influence upon us in their sinful and mortal consequences. You notice that he says here in verse 12 that all sinned. The idea there is what the Bible's teaching is because of what Adam did as our representative, we participated in Adam and in his sin and disobedience to God as the representative of humanity. In a sense, you could illustrate it this way. Adam, the Bible teaches, was like humanity's bus driver. And we were all on board with him as descendants of Adam, as natural descendants who would be born of Adam's seed. Adam was humanity's bus driver. We were all on board and he drove the bus right off the cliff. Now, whether you're the bus driver or you're a passenger, everybody's experiencing the same consequence, true, right? If you go off the cliff. And we were on board with Adam as a descendant of Adam and therefore we are now being born of him inherently sinful. We are born with what only Adam possessed, which was a lack and a loss of spiritual life. He was spiritually dead. And as a result of being born, we are born in Adam's condition of now being sinful and mortal. And as a result, that is why, if you have not figured it out yet, why you are magnetically drawn to do what's wrong in given situations rather than to do what's right. That's why when you're in a tense conversation, you are always going to be drawn to say what's wrong, what's evil, hurtful, harmful, rather than to be drawn to just say what's right. By nature, you're going to be drawn to do what's wrong because by nature we're sinful. Again, I've said before, but to me it's just simply the greatest illustration. You cannot raise a child and not recognize the reality of the concept of what the Bible teaches of being inherently sinful from birth. You know, I've been raising three children, they're teenagers now, and I never once had to teach them how to do anything wrong. Never had to teach them. I never said, let's have a lesson about dishonesty. Let's have a lesson about being sneaky. Let's have a lesson about disrespect. You're going to need that once in a while. Let's talk about how to be selfish. No, right? You walk into the nursery and watch a few children there. And what's some of their favorite words? Mine! No, you know, it's just automatic. They are naturally ingrained to do what's wrong because spiritually that is the way in which they were born. That's why you want your child to be redeemed and you want to get the Holy Spirit in there as soon as possible if you're as a parent. That's the goal because the sooner you get the Spirit of God in there so that there's actually an opportunity to resist sin and to live for God, the parenting process has a little bit more hope in it. But we're naturally born that way. This is what the Bible is teaching us. As a result of Adam, we now are born inherently sinful. And that weren't enough. Again, as a result as well, it says, and therefore death, just like in Adam, has spread to all men. We are all born of Adam's seed. We're all his descendants. And as a result, as a human descendant, we are now subject to the death process. Every one of us, the moment we are born, here's an encouraging thought, the moment you are born, you start dying. I thought about just when I came to church to hear this morning. That's just so, such an encouraging concept. But the reality is, biblically, that's what's true. From the very moment life begins... We are en route to the death process. Whether it's, you know, exposure to some bacteria or just the human body, the thing is breaking down from day one. And as a result, the Bible says, 
the physical death process, it's universal. We're all terminal, and the Bible says that we're all appointed to die. That is our ultimate appointment, to die, and then afterwards, the judgment. The important thing is to recognize that, and therefore, while you're living, to get prepared for the appointment. You have to get prepared for the appointment before it comes. But the reality is that appointment is destined for all of us. Now, you may hear this this morning, as maybe the first time others hear this, and, and, and think, wait a minute, I'm not too thrilled about this, uh, this doctrine here in the Bible of, of Adam causing us to be sinners, and Adam making me experience the results of his driving us off the cliff. That's not fair. Why? I should be able to earn my own sin stripes. I should be able to bring about my own death process. Why does some other guy get to determine the fact that I'm a sinner and cause me to struggle and experience death? Why should one man, another man, be able to ruin everything for me? But I would say this. Wait just a moment and consider the wisdom of God in this. Because if we were put into this mess and result by another person, that also means that we can get delivered out of sin and death by another person. If one man could get us into the mess, then one man can get us out of the mess. And in a sense, you see the tremendous wisdom of God in how he was recognizing all these things, how they would play themselves out, is that Jesus could resolve the very problem that Adam calls. And this is what the rest of our text really here is kind of trying to expand upon that very concept. One man got us into the mess, but another man was able to get us out of it and make available the changes that we can all experience. This is what he's saying here. Look at verse 13. For until the law, he says, sin was in the world... But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death, he says, reigned from Adam unto Moses, even over those, notice, who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, what Paul's doing here is trying to illustrate the truth that he just stated. And the, the main point he's making in verse 13 and 14 is how death reigns over all humanity, and because we can see historically that everybody dies, that everybody's being subject to the death process in all generations, that because death reigns over humanity, that also indicates and validates that we are indeed born sinful, which is what Paul was just saying in verse 12. Being born under sin's rulership is what causes people to sin. Notice, sin existed, Paul says, verse 13, and its powerful effect was in operation in the world from the very beginning and even throughout a time, he says, between Adam and Moses when there was no law to be broken. He says, it's clear sin was in operation for one reason, because he says, because death was reigning and people were still dying. Now, follow the train of thought of what Paul's saying here. In essence, he's saying sin brings death. That's what he just taught us. Sin entered the world and death through sin. So if sin brings death, then what Paul's trying to say is with Adam, the first man, he had a direct command that he was to honor and he disobeyed God's command. And as a result of that disobedience, death came about. Sin came about. He violated God's command. And Moses, who later came, centuries later, the law of God came through Moses with more written standards and commands that could be broken, that were clearly spelled out. However, he says, from Adam to Moses, there was a time 
where Adam, who had a clear command of God, and he violated it, and Moses, who brought the law, many commands of God that could be clearly violated, that were in written form, he says there was a phase of time historically between Adam and Moses when there were no formal commands of God to be violated. But yet, Paul's saying to us here, history reveals that during that time, even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of Adam's transgression, the idea is violating a command of God, he says, sin was still in the world and its power was in operation. People were still proving they were sinful, even without commands to violate. Well, how's that true? He says, because people were still dying. People were still dying. And the reason he brings it up is this is since people died during a period where there were no laws to break and no commands to violate, but it was the presence of inherent sin that were just born sinful, and we don't need commands to prove that, what he's trying to say is that people don't become sinners when they break God's command. He says people are sinners because Adam made them sinners, and when they break commands, they just prove that they're already sinful. You don't become a sinner once you start making mistakes. The Bible says you are a sinner to start with, and when you start making mistakes, that really just proves the reality that we are inherently sinful and subject to death. And he says that's evident because when there were commands and when there weren't commands, death was reigning, which is the byproduct of sin, proving that humanity was still sinful through all that time. Now, the second thing he's telling us in verse 14 here is notice regarding Adam, he says, who was a type of him who was to come. So here he's talking of this representative role of Adam of foreshadowing someone else, another representative. He says, Adam, verse 14, was a type of him who was to come. What he's saying is in the same way Adam was a representative of humanity as natural descendants, he's saying that also was a type and a picture of someone else, Jesus Christ, who was to come ultimately as well. Though Adam was a type that brought the sin process, Jesus becomes a type of a representative of humanity as well that ultimately brings us the undoing of what Adam did. He's speaking of the fact of how Adam's federal headship affected all of us what the Bible teaches is that there would then come a last Adam, if you would, or a, a final Adam, the scripture teaches. Someone else, another man to represent humanity, to represent mankind. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ and where we get this teaching that you'll find in the Bible of what we call two Adams. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of how both Adams, in a sense, represented humanity and affect their spiritual condition. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For since by man came death, by man, referring to Jesus, also comes the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so it is written, the first man became a living being. The last Adam, the Bible says, became a life-giving spirit. So again, the wisdom of God in this process where one representative causes the fall of man and another representative as a man, Jesus living in a body of flesh, serves as a representative to bring restoration to man spiritually. 
He now begins to expound upon the results of that in verses 15 to 17. He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through that one, much more, he says, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now that's a lot of words there trying to bring this concept together. What Paul's basically doing is setting before us, as we just mentioned, the lives and actions of these two men, these two representative important men, Adam, the first man created on the planet who we are all descendants of naturally, and Jesus Christ, who the Bible refers to as the last Adam, who was God who became man to live among us in human flesh, to represent humanity so that he might bring what? Salvation and redemption and reconciliation of man back into relationship with God. And you could say we all start under Adam's legacy. We all start as uh, you know, being born of him naturally and under his lineage naturally. That's why we're born sinful. That's why we're born mortal. We're subject to the death process. But the wonderful thing is Jesus came, as I said, to undo all the mess that Adam made. And as a result of that, in the same way you were first born as Adam's descendant naturally, the Bible says that a person can have a second birth where they can be born spiritually. And then you become a spiritual descendant of Jesus Christ, the last Adam, if you would, and you can experience all the benefits of being born spiritually and becoming a spiritual descendant of being in right relationship with Christ. And you then have a new lineage. You now have a spiritual lineage as you become a descendant connected to Christ. And the Bible here is trying to describe the results and consequences of each representative. And again, just kind of taking the terms so we don't get bogged down here in the midst of it, taking the terms, you can see what Paul's trying to do is just make a contrast. If you just look at the terms here, through one man, Adam, he says, he committed an offense. He sinned, Paul says. And the result of that, look at some of the verses there, it says, as the result of that one man's offense, he says, first of all, many died. He says, judgment came. He says it resulted in condemnation and death reigned. That was the results of what Adam's one action and choice caused. And yet there is another man, one man, Jesus Christ, who came by the grace of God and the result of Jesus coming. Notice it says that brought a free gift to be available to everyone. He says grace abounded, which resulted in justification. Adam brought, verse 16, condemnation, but Jesus' gift, notice, results in justification, that we can be made right with God even though we were sinful. And the opportunity to receive abundance of grace and a gift of righteousness so that we can reign in life, the idea is eternal life, rather than having death reign over us. So in Adam, judgment for sin and eternal death and condemnation. 
in Jesus Christ, if you're in his lineage, there's eternal life and forgiveness through that free gift. Look what he says in verse 17 once again with me. He says, for if by one man's offense... Death reigned through that one man, much more, we see these terms repeatedly, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through that one, Jesus Christ. What Paul's trying to drive home here is simply this. In the same way death reigned in Adam, and that was universal, it was guaranteed. I mean, statistics are pretty convincing. Ten out of every ten people die. Death reigns over humanity. Everybody's mortal. Everybody ultimately is going to face the death process. And even as it is unescapable to, to escape the death process that reigns over our lives as human beings, Paul is saying here much more is it certain that those, he says, verse 17, who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that Jesus Christ now offers, that we would be able to reign in life or to live under the reign of eternal life. What Paul's trying to convey here is that those who receive Jesus, that heaven's reality in eternal life is even much more certain than the death process. Now, would you agree the death process is pretty certain? Are you pretty certain everybody in this room is going to die at some point? What the Bible is saying that it is much more certain. The guarantee of Christ to experience eternal life, that you don't have to wonder about it, you don't have to hope it will all work out in the end. The Bible is saying much more certain is heaven and reigning in life through Christ, even as certain as death is, God offers something even much, much more certain. The decision becomes simply this, what are we going to allow to reign over our lives? Do you want to stay under the reign of Adam, which you are naturally born under, or do you want to submit to and become under the reign of Christ so that you can reign in life rather than have death and sin reign over your lives? And notice it's a choice. I have circled in verse 17 the word receive. Notice, I think that's key. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Sin already reigns over all of our lives. Death already reigns over all of our lives. You have no choice in that. But the Bible says you do have a choice to come out from under the reign of that tyrannical situation you're in spiritually and to experience a new ruler over your life, Jesus Christ. But he says you must receive. You must receive. You must receive that grace God offers and the gift that he offers. John says this in John chapter 1, that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world didn't know him. And he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, those who believe in his name. Please, please hear me. Do not miss in the same way that you and I have no control over the fact that you are sinful by nature and destined to die, God has given you the opportunity to have control over being forgiven of your sin and having eternal life rather than being cast into hell after you die. God has given you the option. He's presented the escape plan. He's made it available. He says, look, I got a gift of righteousness, an abundance of grace. It doesn't matter what you've done. I'll forgive it. 
I'll make you right with me and give you the reign of eternal life. But he says, but it's, I'm going to leave you the freedom to receive it. And that is an amazing concept to me that God actually grants us the option to choose. In essence, let's be very evident, God sends no one to hell. People choose to go to hell because people choose not to receive the gift that God freely offers and God honors that decision. He allows you to spend eternity where you will. He allows you to decide whether you will receive or whether you will refuse. Verse 18, Paul goes on to say, therefore, and you can tell he's becoming summary oriented now, he's reiterating what we've been saying, therefore, as through one man's offense... Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Now, I hope you notice the language. Paul's being real purposeful in the way he's speaking here. Through one man's offense, judgment came, resulting in condemnation. Through one man's righteous act, a free gift came, resulting in justification. He then emphasizes again, verse 19, through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Here you see in verse 18 and 19 a powerful contrast of choice and consequence choice and consequence that's what he's trying to emphasize back to the idea of what we were saying earlier of how the actions of just one man have effect and result upon all of you and I this morning which resulted in our outcome of our spiritual condition again the repeated emphasis through one man came these results through another one man came these results, and the results were very far-reaching. The idea, again, is this representative concept that God allows to happen. Really, you could say it really is not a bad idea. For everything that Adam ruined, Jesus has resolved. And since Adam as one man could mistake and mess everything up for us, Jesus can perfectly, on our behalf, Fix all the problem for us. So listen, it's the responsibility is not on your shoulders to fix everything spiritually. Jesus took the responsibility. He didn't say, well, you know what, I'll, I'll, get, I'll count on you. I'll put all the responsibility on you to get right with God. Instead, the exact opposite was the case. Jesus said, I'll take the responsibility to resolve everything for you and I'll offer it to you freely as something that's available to you as a gift. And Jesus resolved everything that Adam ruined. You know, if you can almost picture the concept of Adam ruining things and Jesus resolving things, again, if you can picture in your mind, let's say, for example, we're on a nature hike. And as we're on a nature hike, we have this tour guide that's taking us through an area and he comes to this cave. And clearly marked on the cave, there's a sign that says, no trespassing. And if you trespass and enter in, realize you do so at your own risk because avalanches occur frequently and you can be trapped inside and lose your life. Well, the tour guide, he can see the sign is clearly posted. He's the tour guide. He knows the rule better than anybody. But the tour guide says, yeah, you know what? And he violates 
the established law. He pushes through. He invites us through. We walk in with him. And lo and behold, like the sign says, the avalanche happens and we're all trapped inside. Well, the tour guide feels really guilty because it was his mistake. So he makes a few efforts, kind of like sewing fig leaves together to get himself out of the mess and save everybody else because he feels so bad that he caused this problem. But none of it works. We're all trapped. We're all going to die. Everyone's experiencing the consequences. Outside, they realize what's happened. And the person who's the park ranger, who takes care of all that territory and who posted the sign, please do not trespass. You can enjoy everything else here in the forest, but please just don't trespass this one place because something horrible could happen to you. The very one who posted the sign, rather than be angry and offended, says, you know what, we have to do something to save everyone. He realizes we can't use dynamite. That might blow everybody and everything up and there's no other back entrance in. So probably the best and only resolution is if one by one, we go through the process of removing each stone carefully to make a small narrow tunnel that maybe I could crawl in through and we could pull people out one at a time. And he has to risk his life to do that, but he does that in love and devotion to want to salvage and save everyone who's stuck inside. And that's a very fitting picture in essence of what's transpired with us. Adam, our tour guide, knowing the rule, violated the rule. And he invited us along in with him, and we went right in with him, just like everyone else, and got trapped inside. And he tried to resolve the problem, but he couldn't. But Jesus, who posted the very sign, said, you know what? I'll risk my life for it. And one by one, if you would, it's like one stone. Every stone that Adam piled in the rubble of mess he made, Jesus, one by one, put back and took away everything that was messed up and ruined in the great atom bomb and risked his life to make a path of reconciliation and salvation and deliverance for every one of us. You know, when you look at verse 18 and 19, this whole contrast of choices and consequences, to me, these verses here powerfully, powerfully remind us of the far-reaching effect of choices. When you look at Adam's choice and the consequences and the one man Jesus' choice and the consequences, you realize the far-reaching effect of making decisions, both in the negative, right, and in the positive. Adam had negative decisions that were made and negative consequences. Jesus had positive decisions. And it's a great reminder that, listen, one sinful act, Please remember, one sinful act of disobedience to God's word can bring destructive effects not just in your life, but can cause a lot of hurt, pain, and devastation in a lot of people's lives. Don't give me this concept, oh, I, I, my sin, it's me in between me and God alone. No, it is not. Your one sinful, selfish act to violate God's word can hurt and harm a whole lot of people. A whole lot of people. And other people suffer as a result. Now in the same way, listen, one righteous act in choosing obedience, like Jesus did, in the same way can have a very helpful impact to serve and bless a whole lot of people. And I would just say to you this morning, realize sometimes one choice or decision in a situation can turn the whole course of events. You may be facing something and you have the opportunity to make a wrong choice, a selfish decision, a selfish choice. Can I encourage you really think about that before you take that step? 
Because you can turn the whole course of events, you can ruin a family, ruin a church, ruin a business, ruin a whole bunch of people's lives by one selfish and sinful choice to satisfy yourself. Now, in the same way, you may be in a situation and you may be the person who God allows to be in a place where by one righteous act, where you're obedient, even though it's hard to be obedient and do the right and righteous thing, you may very well turn the whole course of events and help and benefit a whole lot of people because you did the righteous thing. And that one righteous decision, that one sacrificial choice can bless a whole lot of people. The power of choice, so clearly illustrated there, even with Adam and with Christ. Well, let's look at these last few verses to finish up. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So he comes back to this idea of chapter 3, where he talked about the law reveals our sinful condition. The law entered, or the text literally indicates, was set beside, it came in alongside so that sin might abound. Now, what he's talking about here is what Romans 3 said, that by the law is the knowledge of sin. That the law of God reveals to us the fact that we're sinful, like a mirror. You look in a mirror, and it shows you your true condition. You use a thermometer, it shows you your temperature. You utilize uh, something like a speed sign when you're driving down the road. It indicates that you're now violating the law. Now, all of these things, a mirror can't take the dirt off your face. It just reveals that you have dirt on your face. It reveals your condition. It makes you aware of your condition. And the Bible tells us that God's law and following God's law can't remove our sin. It just reveals our condition. Now, when he says here the law entered that sin might abound, he's not saying that the law came to provoke people to violate it to kind of tempt people to challenge it. What he's talking about here is how the law of God caused sin to abound in that this sense, when you set something perfectly straight next to something crooked, then you can really tell something is crooked. Not only that, sometimes when you have something perfectly true and straight and you lay it next to something crooked, all of a sudden you realize, wow, that's actually a lot more crooked than I thought it was. Look how tremendously crooked that is. And what he's saying is when the righteous law of God came, we were already crooked. But when the standard of the law came, it caused our awareness of the abounding amount of sin in our life to be tremendously increased. Because when we saw the standard and the requirement, we went, wow, I'm a lot more crooked than I thought I was. I didn't realize I was that guilty. I didn't realize I was so uh, evil and disobedient to God. We become quite astonished at the abundance of our guilt. But he says, verse 20 going on, but where sin abounded, notice, grace abounded much more. He's giving now a contrast of man's sin and God's grace. So that sin, as it reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's contrasting now our abundance of sin with the abundance of grace in Christ. He's saying, even though we realize that our sin abounded, he says, but yet grace abounded much more. In other words, what he's trying to say here is, as we recognize the abundance of our sin, God also wants to realize that the abundance of grace that's available in Jesus is far greater 
It far surpasses any amount of sin, the overflowing grace of God. And God wants us to come to that place of realizing that the power of his grace to forgive, to change, to transform, it far supersedes any amount of sin or sinful condition. There is no sin or no amount of sin in your life that the grace of God does not have forgiveness and, and in a sense, healing and restoration from. And notice God supplies that abundance of grace, he says, so that people might enter into, what a great term, the reign of grace, so that grace might reign through righteousness. Even as sin once reigned in your life, God says, now I want my grace to reign over your life. I want the grace of God to reign over your life. He wants us to begin to understand, as Romans 6 through 8 will talk about, that we have a new position spiritually. We have a new relationship with sin now and what used to be an influence over our life. Now the grace of God has provided forgiveness for that and the grace of God supplies to us even more the power and the ability to be able to live righteously through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a sense, the greatest issue simply becomes for every person, who or what are you going to allow to reign over your life? Are you still in Adam this morning? And are you still letting the reign of Adam's tyranny and sin and its consequences reign over your life, which you are naturally? Or have you chosen to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and to come out from under that tyrannical reign and let King Jesus, who's the king of the reign of grace, to reign over your life, to make you righteous before God, to give you eternal life through his life, and to give you the grace not only to forgive your sins and mistakes, but to give you the grace of God, listen, to live righteously over the power of sin in your life so that you can experience the transformed life that God wants for you. That's an important decision that everyone has to make and a decision that God affords to us to be able to determine who and what will reign over our lives.